Welcome to the December 2007 edition of Ordinary Means, the uh, podcast uh, brought to you by Ordinary Men, calling you back to the Ordinary Means of Grace. Uh, you can find the podcast, uh, obviously if you're listening to it now, you've found the podcast, but if you're referring this to friends, uh, you can find us at OrdinaryMeans.com or at our blog, which is OrdinaryMeans.blogspot.com. Uh, today on the show, uh, we're here, uh, Matt and I. Hi, Matt. Hey, Sean. Uh, we're here today uh, to answer some of your questions. Uh, we've gotten a number of questions on the topic of baptism at the site, and so we thought we would take an episode to uh, to look at some of those questions. Uh, they're great questions. Uh, the first that we want to deal with comes to us from Robert. Uh, hi, Robert. Uh, Robert listens to the podcast and enjoys the podcast. And the last podcast that we did, that one on big P preaching versus small p preaching, uh, that is the preaching that the pastor does, who's uh, ordained and called to preach, and the preaching that all of us do, um, often uh, often uses the term in scripture, the term is used for counseling, when we counsel one another, when we uh, bring the or word, proclamation, proclaim the word, when we speak the truth in love. Uh, all of these are small p preaching. And Robert asks this, he says, in arguing that every believer is called to little p preaching, you referred to the Great Commission and asserted that every believer individually is called to evangelism. However, if this is the case, wouldn't it also follow that every believer is called to baptize converts? I can't separate, make disciples, and baptize them. It would all be my personal duty and privilege. Every denomination I know, he writes, teaches that evangelism is an individual responsibility, but no denomination I know of teaches that an individual believer may or should baptize those who are converted through his ministry. Would it be better to understand the Great Commission as a corporate responsibility given to the church rather than to individuals? And if so, what would that look like? Now, Robert, that is a, that is a great question, and I think it's a question that uh, many of us have, uh, have struggled with uh, in light of the age we live in. Uh, we live in an age that is very individualistic. Uh, we live in an age where uh, all of spirituality is focused upon uh, the individual. It's all about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I don't think either Matt or I would want to downplay that. Certainly, uh, Jesus himself says that on the last day there are those who will come to him and will say, haven't I done all these great things in your name? And Jesus will look at them and say, I didn't know you. So there is very much a personal, individual relationship that each of us is to have uh, vitally with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there's no question of that. Uh, but in focusing on the individual, I think the church has lost something of the corporate uh, nature of what we're talking about. Um, my answer, I'll let uh, Matt chime in here at any point that he'd like, but I think my answer to your question is that Matthew 28 is talking to the church as a whole, uh, about the responsibilities that the church has as a whole. It's the church's responsibility to make disciples and to baptize. Uh, no, no one has ever uh, been asked to bear all of the weight of that, except for perhaps Billy Graham. Uh, I think at times people have thought it's up to Billy Graham to save the world. 
Uh, no, it's up to the church. Um, Billy Graham being one light among many, uh, being one salt shaker among many salt shakers. And uh, so we're all called uh, to evangelize, but we're called to do it as part of the church. And each of us will play uh, a differing role and a, a small part in the bigger picture. Now, when it comes to baptism, if that's the church's responsibility, uh, then the question is, well, who baptizes in the scripture? And I think this is why, Robert, as you, uh, as you pointed out, uh, you don't know of any churches that uh, allow the individual believer to baptize. There are a few out there mm-hmm. uh, where you can baptize. Uh, I know of churches where uh, parents have been offered the opportunity to baptize their own children uh, and things, things of that nature, or if you've discipled well, and, somebody. Well, and in Roman Catholic theology as well. If a child is going to die very, very quickly, this is to our second question. Yes. But if a child is to die very, very quickly, it's most essential that the child be baptized. Irrelevant of the person doing the baptizing. Yes. Yeah, so, so in a uh, in in a difficult situation, in an outside sort of a, a break the rule type of situation, you know, grab the glass of water and and do a quick baptism just to be sure. Um, and certainly, that's been done. Uh, again and again in churches uh, by individuals throughout the ages. Uh, but if you look at the New Testament, who's baptizing? And in what context? Yeah, and in what context? It's it's always the apostles or uh, somebody who has received, uh, been laid hands upon by the, um, uh, by the apostles. Uh, there's never a case that I can think of. Can you think of one, Matt? I can't think of one. Nope. A case of an individual baptizing. It's always uh, the leaders in the church, whether it be uh, deacons become pastors, this is the case with Philip, uh, or uh, the apostles themselves. And the reason always seems to be is because it's entrance into the church, and these are the men who've been designated with the authority to, to bind or loosen. It's the keys of the kingdom. The keys kind of, of the issue. kingdom. Yeah. So they're, uh, it's the leaders of the church who make the decision on behalf of the church. Has this person made a credible profession of faith? Or do they believe and can they uh, now come for baptism, uh, which is the mark of entry into the church? And that's the important thing to remember. Well, as we answer the second question, Robert, I think, too, that this will become more clear because um, certainly one of the things that I'm going to say as we talk about the second question we've got to answer today is who's speaking in baptism? And this is, of course, a a matter of debate between your run-of-the-mill Baptist and your run-of-the-mill Presbyterian. Um, Certainly we've got some Reformed Baptist brothers that that uh, would disagree with the run-of-the-mill Baptist kind of way of talking about baptism. I, maybe you want to define run-of-the-mill. Well, I'm just trying to say that the, your typical Baptist uh, that you'd run into, say, in the South, not, a, not an educated, well-articulated Reformed Baptist, such as some of those men that we went to seminary with who are, whom we love uh, and who have thought a lot more and a lot more fully about baptism and its meaning, um, would say that the person speaking in baptism is the individual believer. And when we think that the person speaking in baptism is the individual believer who is to be baptized, that they're the one making a statement, uh, then it makes sense that another individual believer could be here, there to hear that statement and to apply the water. But if we believe that it is God speaking in baptism, not God doing necessarily, but God speaking in baptism, uh, then it makes perfect sense that God's man, in this case, somebody set apart 
to teach and preach that word, 1 Timothy 5, right? That there are some who are especially set apart for preaching and teaching, for prayer, uh, that it would be most appropriate if God's going to be speaking in the context of the church to have God's appointed spokesman, uh, an elder in that church, uh, do the baptizing, especially the elder who's been set aside to teach and preach, the one we call the minister or the teaching elder in the PCA. The one who administers word and sacrament. Exactly. Yep, on behalf of Christ. Right. So I guess in summary, Robert, uh, the answer to your question is is the answer I think you probably knew all along, given from... Uh, given as you, you answered your own question in the question, uh, w- wouldn't it be better to understand the Great Commission as a corporate responsibility given to the church? And the answer is yes. And because it's given corporately to the church, uh, it's given in some fashion to the individuals uh, within the church. Uh, one, maybe one more note on that. Yeah. It is interesting, that text that we, that we referred to last month uh, in the podcast in Acts the eighth chapter that went and notice that it doesn't say that when they scattered, um, they went about baptizing. Um, you find Jesus saying, not saying that he baptized much. You find Paul saying that he wasn't about baptizing. Uh, and so in some sense, these men who were, uh, in some sense, lone ranger, Prophet types didn't baptize. They left that to the settled churches. And I think that's, that's helpful. There's something there. There's, there's something that, that's there in the air, if you will, about that, that makes us see that baptism is this community thing. It's God speaking to the community, um, not uh, a lone ranger out there baptizing on his own. Well, moving on to the second question, this is a question from Anonymous, uh, who really gets around. I I was just reading a book recently of ancient (laughs) quotes, and Anonymous had made quite a number of them, Uh, but it's good to know that Anonymous listens to our podcast. Absolutely. Uh, Generally, just as a rule, we'd prefer you to identify yourself uh, when asking questions, uh, even if just by a first name, we we don't need your social security number. But uh, Anonymous did ask a good question, and it relates to the topic we're addressing today. And so we're going to spend probably uh, the vast majority of the remainder of the podcast answering this question. And I think at at times, as Matt has indicated, this will reflect back on Robert's question as well. Uh, Anonymous says this. He says, thanks, guys, for your encouraging and insightful podcast. I enjoyed this month's uh, a question I've been mulling over in my mind is one of how connected is salvation to baptism. I realize that baptism is not a means of regeneration, but it seems that whenever baptism is mentioned in Scripture, it's uniquely tied to salvation. And he he, uh, gives the example of 1 Peter uh, 3.21 that we will deal with in in detail today. Uh, Then he goes on to say, "...from my reading of the Church Fathers, like Augustine, It seems they place a great deal of salvific importance upon baptism. Uh, Historically, I know that Reformed theology holds to it as a means of grace, with which I agree, but in what way and to what degree is it linked to salvation? Uh, Now, I think, Anonymous, uh, that is a a great question. Uh, I think it's a wonderful question. I think it's a question that the Church uh, has struggled with uh, throughout uh, really since the second century, 
which is where we see baptismal regeneration uh, really becoming the standard view. That is the idea that uh, the act of baptizing someone, the act of uh, the, the priest putting water, uh, the pastor putting water on the individual actually conveys some grace, actually uh, presses upon that person some uh, some level of grace uh, or actual salvation. Um, this, by the second century, really was becoming the standard. And that's why you have men like Augustine, who lived in a day uh, where this was commonplace. Augustine writes in his confessions, uh, he had a number of friends, uh, one in particular who was very, very sick. And at the time, Augustine and his friend uh, just enjoyed mocking Christianity. And his friend uh, becomes very, very sick. And in that sickness, uh, his friend's mother calls for the priest who comes and baptizes him, lest he die unbaptized, lest he die a non-Christian. So there's an obvious idea there in, in that day and age that unless you receive baptism, uh, you will not die a Christian. And uh, the irony of the story... And this or is, let's, let's, let's play this a little bit, Sean. <laughs> you won't die... Christian. Yes. Not a Christian. It, so there's a there's a there's a distinction there that maybe we can get into a little bit later between somebody federally being Christian and a person being a Christian. Someone who identifies themselves as a Christian outwardly and someone who is a Christian truly inwardly. Yes. And and I think uh, we all would agree that there is uh, there is definitely a difference. There are people sitting in church who have been sitting in that church and have been baptized uh, they long ago who are not Christians. Right. And there are people sitting in church who've been in that church for a long time, baptized long ago, who are Christians. Right. And uh, it's important to make that distinction. The confessions make that distinction. They call it the visible-invisible church distinction. Uh, Those who are truly called of God and those who uh, simply have uh, have obeyed the outward call but not the inward call. Now, um, the irony in Augustine's situation uh, is that God used that in Augustine's life. Because his friend got better. Hmm. And Augustine uh, began mocking him and saying, you, you received baptism. You know, what are you going to do about that? And his friend, in all seriousness, looked back at him and said, Augustine, I will not have you around me if you continue to speak this way of my Christianity. Interesting. And, uh, and so Augustine sort of left in a huff and he didn't see his friend for a while, and the next thing he heard, his friend had gotten sick and died again. Hmm. And this was a key piece that God used uh, to get Augustine serious about the Christian faith. Interesting. Hmm. Now, um, I believe Augustine, too, had been sick uh, at a time. Maybe somebody wiser than I can uh, can correct this. Matt, if you remember from the Confessions, I believe there was a time when he got sick as a child, and he recounts being thankful that his mother, Monica, did not baptize him. Hmm. I uh, that. So, 
uh, he was, uh, I, I can't remember if it, if it was that Monica wanted to baptize him and she didn't get the opportunity. Uh, it was something of that nature. But he recalls later in the confessions, he says, I was very thankful for that uh, because he felt that much of his life then would have been false hmm. to have been identified as a believer when in truth he knew his heart wasn't there. Right, right. You know, it's not until he gets, uh, until he's sitting under the teaching of Ambrose that Augustine really comes to understand the gospel, and it's at that point that he receives baptism uh, when he really realizes there is no, I don't have a choice. Right. I have to believe in this God. Yeah. Uh, there is no, there is salvation by no other name. Uh, but but this God and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, so I think you'll find even going back and looking at Augustine's confessions that Augustine had a fairly balanced view on baptism. And in many ways, he, he reacts against uh, the view that was common in that day. Um, however, that the view doesn't change. And it's really uh, not recovered until the Reformation. Baptism is really not brought back to being understood as a sign and a seal of something that that must take place by faith, and if the faith isn't there, there's nothing happening. Right. Uh, water is uh, is meaningless apart from faith, and um, and apart from the spirit's work, and apart from the spirit's work, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But there would be no faith apart right. from the spirit's right. work. I think uh, the analogy that I use oftentimes is, you know, if we really believe that baptism. Uh, brought about faith or the baptism regenerated, then we should be out on the street with fire hoses, squirting down absolutely everybody that we can as quick as as right. we possibly can. Right. Right. And the foolishness of that analogy shows the foolishness of thinking that simply putting water on regenerates. Now, Anonymous uh, said, uh, the writer of this question said, uh, you know, he doesn't believe it means regeneration, but the scripture, he says, seems to tie it with regeneration. Well, and there's something that's important there. You know, there's a there's a difference between relationship and inseparability. There certainly is a relationship of meaning between baptism and salvation, and that's why some of the texts that we'll look at today are together. But just just to make absolutely clear that they are separable. Yes. Um, Luke twenty three forty three. This is the thief on the cross. One of whom we find out in in Luke's gospel. These two that Jesus was in being numbered with the transgressors, and he's he's uh, crucified between these two criminals, um, repents and says, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me uh, in paradise. Uh, now that man was not baptized. And yet, uh, he Christ promised him he would be with him in paradise. Uh, Paul was, as I've already mentioned, uh, pretty, not nonchalant about baptism, but he wasn't, he did not sense that his ministry was baptism. And yet he surely sensed that those who heard the word of the gospel and believed were going to heaven. Well, uh, the, the actual quote there, that's from 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, Paul says this, he says, um, I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Uh, beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, uh, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, Paul had a very good opportunity there to say that baptism is the power of God for salvation. Right. But he chooses not to. Right. But to put, right. put the focus on the preaching of the word. Yep. And this is where the reformers would always come back and say, uh, the sacraments must be there with the word. Uh, you cannot have baptism apart from the preached word because it has no meaning apart from the word of God. Uh, which goes to what you were saying just a minute ago, Matt, that there is a, uh, there is a relationship between baptism and salvation. But mm-hmm. there is not, and I believe this is the technical term, there is not an identification. There's not an identity between the two. Yes, yes they're absolutely. not the same thing. Uh, but there is a relationship between them. And this is why uh, they're so often uh, related in the scriptures. And maybe the, the way the confession puts this is, is uh, this is, um, well, I'm, I'm using one from the, from the, United, or the old United Presbyterian Church. But anyways, this is the chapter from the Confession. I'm not sure what it is and what the PCA uses the chapter, but uh, it, uh, this is the chapter on the sacraments. We have to be fair. It's because it's the only thing Matt could find to put on his palm pilot. My palm pilot. Yes, I'm reading off technology right now, and I, I will repent by reading Technopoly tomorrow. Um, sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God. Now, here's here's what's going on. In a sacrament, not a doing, a being, a speaking, a messaging, to represent Christ and his benefits, and to confirm our interest in him as also to put a visible difference, there's a visible church distinction, between those that belong to to the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them to the service of God and Christ according to his word. Uh, when the man that uh, under which Sean and I both interned in California would baptize uh, a person, uh, he would talk about them being marked for Christ, set apart to his service. Uh, and that's a good way to think about baptism is that it it is uh, an obligation, uh, a higher obligation, in fact, uh, to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. Now, to what Sean was referring just before I started to read this, the second section on the sacraments, Westminster Confession of Faith, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation. Okay, so there is relation without identity or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. All right, that's why scripturally, what the confession is saying, that's why scripturally baptism and salvation uh, traffic in the same language. In fact, if you go on with this, uh, when it, so it comes to pass, I'm doing the Matt translation here, the old English for you. So it comes to pass that the names and the effects of the one are attributed to the other. And so uh, in the same way that uh, when we talk about the two natures of Christ, uh, we'll say God died. Now, now, we're not actually believing that the one who has uh, existence in and of himself from which life uh, exists passed away. What we mean is that in his, regarding his humanity, Christ died. But the thing that's said of the one can be said of the other, of the man, Jesus Christ. In the same way, the sacraments, the language of the sacraments, we can say, um, baptism now saves you. And know from what the rest of Scripture says that it indeed that's not what's being said. It's the effect uh, of that. Uh, it's that um, that the, the one is being attributed to the other. It's obviously Christ only who saves and the one who trusts in Him. But baptism is uh, that sign uh, that signifies 
uh, salvation through Christ, of the washing away of sin. And it's very important that we not confuse the sign and the thing signified. Right. In the same way that we not confuse uh, the humanity and, and the divinity of Christ. Well, and, and the thing that I think happens today in, in um, commonly um, it, it, is that some today, in today's theological world, and some of you are going to know indirectly what we're talking about from previous uh, podcasts that we've had and maybe other reading that you've done, is that there are some in, in our modern theological uh, discourse who will say, no, we distinguish between the two of them. We just believe that they always happen together. That when the sign is there, the thing signified is there also. So they want to have their cake and eat it too. Except confessionally, um, that there's not necessarily um, that they're at the same uh, at the same time. Let me see if I can find that. Sean, why don't you go on and I'll come back to that. Well, what I wanted to go on to is a verse that uh, we I think we both brought up here in the course of the podcast, and that is 1 Peter 3, 21, uh, which, which reads, corresponding to that baptism now saves you. And this seems to be the verse, uh, the, well, this is the verse that um, uh, our questioner mentioned, and it's certainly a verse that comes up uh, again and again, particularly by uh, by those who want to argue that the sign and the thing signified are there's are an identity s- between them. so yeah. identical that uh, that one cannot happen without the other. Um, which uh, I was reading uh, Calvin in his Institutes, and he asks the question in his Institutes. He says, uh, "What the the question that is asked? What happens to an infant at baptism?" And uh, here would be Calvin's opportunity to say that uh, something does happen, that there is a connection between the sign and the thing signified. And Calvin's response is to talk about what happens to the parents at infant baptism for, for a couple paragraphs. And then he comes back to the infants and he says, as to what happens within them, uh, I, I don't have time for those who would speculate. So he says, I, I really don't know. At, at another place, Calvin says, I believe that there may be a seed of faith that God places in the hearts of infants who will later believe, uh, that a seed that will not mature until that time later when when they do have faith. Yeah. Uh, but there he's only talking about elect infants. As the, as the confession talks about, it's elect infants dying in infancy. Uh, who go to heaven, which is a clever way of the confession getting around uh, dealing with saying whether or not all children who die in infancy go to heaven. Now, before you get there, let me just read these two sections from the confession. Okay. Um, this is uh, on on uh, baptism. Uh, the confession uh, talks about section five in the chapter on baptism. Although it, now this is to this is uh, making the point that I made earlier about the in, you know the inseparable salvation of baptism. Although it'll be a great sin to contem- to uh, contemn or neglect this ordinance, that's like contempt of court. Yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed to it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. Okay, so they're separable. So, yeah, so, so right there, it takes it from both angles. Right. It says, it says just because you've been baptized doesn't mean that you are a Christian. Right. And uh, just because you haven't been baptized doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Right, right. Let me read the next section. The efficacy of baptism, um, that the effect that it has, is not tied to that moment of time where it is administered. So right there, 
I think confessionally what we're trying to say is scripturally what went on. We think about uh, uh, some of those in the New Testament who we read about, who are baptized, and then later uh, we find out uh, apostatize. So there, for sure, we do not have authentic regeneration of the individual because we believe in perseverance. Uh, instead, what we have is a baptism without genuine faith. Uh, and so they are not necessarily always together. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time where is wherein it is administered, yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited, that's a very important word, and confirmed by and conferred by the Holy Ghost. Now remember that conferring of the grace that is signed, that signified. The conferring of that grace uh, to such, whether of age or infants, is that grace belongs unto, according to the counsel of God's own will, in his appointed time. So there's a grace exhibited, and there is a grace conferred, but it's at the time that the Holy Ghost chooses. John the Baptist, that grace was his before he was circumcised. Um, others, it's much, much later. Uh, and so we want to be careful not only to distinguish them, the sign and the thing signified, but also distinguish the time. Uh, may God re- choose to regenerate an infant at the moment of his baptism? Absolutely. But we can't tie his hands and say that's what you're going to do every time. Um, he's not promised that, the best I can tell. No, certainly, certainly not. And even uh, getting back then to this passage, First um, Peter three twenty one, uh, as I, I think we'll see, this passage says nothing of the sort. Uh, this passage is in full agreement. Um, you know, this passage is the basis for. Uh, much of what you've just read read out of the confession. Mm-hmm. Uh, we read there, corresponding baptism now saves you, and and that phrase just taken out of context has scared a lot of people. Uh, in fact, I think there's a book floating around now uh, that's just been published uh, that that asks that question: Does baptism save you? Hmm. Um, and uh, and the answer, of course, is no. <laughs> uh, l- let me tell you what saves you. If you look up at verse 18, I'm now looking at First uh, Peter 3. If you look up at verse 18, actually, no, I'm going to go back a little further than that. I'm going to go back to chapter 1 of First Peter, verse 3, where we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through, here it is, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, what is the source? Uh, what is uh, what is the cause of all grace and mercy that come to us? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, continuing to expound upon that, Peter comes to chapter 3 and he says this. He says in verse 17, It's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is what is wrong. Then he uses Christ as an example of this. He says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Nothing about baptism bringing us to God here. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So he's, again, applying this to suffering. He's saying, though you might be put to death in the flesh, though you might suffer physically, 
yet you will remain alive in the Spirit. Why? Because Christ died for you, the just for the unjust. Uh, then going down then um, to verse 20, uh, he, he says, he, he ties this to what happened to Noah. He says, uh, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Uh, here he ties the ark to the resurrection of Christ. He says the, the ark essentially is Christ. And it was the ark that carried them through the water. It's the vehicle of salvation. It was the vehicle of salvation was, was Christ. Now, the very next verse is corresponding to that what? To the ark carrying them through the water. Baptism now saves you. Now, just stop there. Those who confuse this verse and want to take this out of context say that baptism refers to the water surrounding the ark. That's not what this text is saying. This text is saying that baptism corresponds not to the water, but to the ark. To Christ. Who is Christ. So what saves you but Christ? Baptism corresponds to the resurrection of Christ. We have died with Christ in, in, we've been buried in baptism, and we've been raised anew with Christ. Now, if that's not enough for you, that this is all about Jesus and not about outward water baptism, all you have to do is read the very next line. Verse 21, chapter 3 of Peter, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through, here it is, Harking back to chapter 1, verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Now, uh, so right there, the, the, the verse that perhaps is the, is the most confusing to the most people says, this is not about outward baptism. Hmm. This is not about physical water baptism. Physical water baptism, going back to the confession, is simply a sign and a seal. It's representative, what? Of the resurrection of Christ. That somebody who has placed their faith in Christ has died to themselves and has been made alive to Christ. They have been born again. And so when they receive baptism, what they're receiving is an outward sign of an inward reality. Uh, there's no question about that. And this verse says... Uh, says that very thing. Now, did you want to add anything to that, Matt? Because I want to not First Peter, on. but I do want to get to Romans six and Romans four, just okay. to talk a little bit about the linking and why they're linked. Okay. Well, let me make just one more point then about First uh, Peter three twenty one. Okay. Please. Uh, it says that it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So it's not something physically we're doing with water to get us clean. That's not the baptism he's talking about. He's talking about the resurrection. And the correspondence there between baptism and resurrection. Mm -hmm. um, but he says, it's not that, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, this has been taken two ways in history, and I think it's important that we, that we note these two ways, because this is going to be the next question that follows. Uh, the first is that this appeal to God for a good conscience means that when I come in baptism, I'm coming, as you said earlier, Matt, individually, and I'm coming to appeal to God. It's me speaking in baptism. Um, that's not the historic taking uh, sense here. The historic sense here is more that in baptism, I'm making a pledge uh, to Christ 
uh, based upon certain questions being asked of me. And this has historically always been the case uh, from the, even from the time of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed was read, and you agreed with it in terms of your baptism. This is so, an adult convert. An adult convert. Uh, so uh, reading here, I'm actually reading from, uh, this is InterVarsity Press's Hard Sayings, uh, dealing with this text. And the thing, the point that's made here is uh, that this, the interpretation of appeal to God for a good conscience is based on parallels with Jewish rites and the term pledge and other literature of the time. It's the candidate for baptism being asked a series of questions such as, do you pledge yourself to follow Jesus as Lord, uh, perhaps reflected in verses like Acts 8.37, 1 Timothy 6.12, and it's the response of commitment to God and identification with Christ. And here, this is, this is the way uh, the, this writer puts it, if it comes from a good conscience. Hmm. So, if we're coming simply as an outward show because somebody told us hey you should you should become a christian just say yes to all the questions they ask you and so somebody comes and they're you know they're fearful for their soul but maybe not haven't been inwardly changed and they say yes i i believe in jesus does that make them a christian no if their conscience is clear that's when baptism saves is when real faith is taking place there mm. For sure, because it, it the response of faith is a response to a message. Um, the uh, earlier question uh, about whether an individual should baptize uh, it, it is centered in a Western style style individual individualistic uh, sort of mindset where baptism is seen. Um, I even recently somebody sent me a link to a, a, a video on a on a, a church uh, website uh, where they were having their annual baptism service at a water park, and there were testimonies of uh, of how um, people in the previous year in the little video clip it was the pastor trying to prepare people for what it would be like to be baptized, and. Um, the testimonies were from people who had been baptized the previous year and how much it had meant to them. And I'm not I'm not down on an adult convert uh, remembering the day of their baptism. I'm not down on that at all. I'm not even down on um, when a child is baptized, especially our, our catechism reminds us of this, of improving our baptism. And then when a child is baptized in a church, the... Uh, the conversation at the supper table led by the fathers, by the husbands, ought to be different on that day. Uh, it ought to center on improving our baptism. So I'm not down on that at all. But what I am down on is um, who is baptism for? Uh, why does God give it to us? And, and this is where the question, I think, uh, hits on something that we don't think about very much, which is that God is speaking something in baptism. We're saying he's not doing something. He might do something in baptism, um, but he's not tied to that. But he is definitely speaking something. He's speaking the gospel. Uh, and so as with the Lord's Supper, a visible uh, demonstration of the gospel. Uh, Hebrews is painstaking uh, in trying to... Uh, 
fend off uh, attempts um, by those who were deceiving uh, the recipients of that letter uh, to go back to, as one of our seminary professors put it, smells and bells. Because the the writer there of Hebrews is trying to um, trying to say we've been given in these sacraments all that God wants to address us with in terms of our uh, vision of our visual. Do we think about baptism that way? And, and I guess in that, I'm thinking about Romans 6. That when we see somebody baptized, are we thinking um, that this is God preaching the gospel to us? That when we see somebody baptized, that we see someone buried in baptism and raised in Christ, uh, just like First Peter talks about, that they might walk in newness of life. Do we see that that's what's going on in baptism, is that it's God speaking the gospel to us to convince us of our need for Christ, uh, to confirm to us that indeed if we've trusted in Christ, that just as the water runs off the baby's head, that our sins have been washed away, and that that's what we're supposed to see. And it's meant to be for us. It's meant to... to um, Confirm to us our interest in Christ so that we get um, this gospel. That's what he's doing in both sacraments. He's proclaiming the gospel to us, proclaiming our acceptance through Christ, trying to convince us that as guilty as we feel, that as we're trusting in Christ, our sins have been washed away. His body has been broken for us. His blood has washed away our sins. Can I just insert here? Please. uh, Article 33 of the Belgic Confession says, of the sacraments, we believe that our gracious God, on account of our weakness and infirmities, hath ordained the sacraments for us. Isn't that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. That it's the same thing with the Lord's Supper. It's this reminder that Jesus died for you. Mm. (laughs) And the sacraments, it's the same thing. It's a reminder, Jesus died for you, but God doesn't just leave it in word only. Right. But he makes it real and tangible and physical, not not to say, I'm going to actually convey the grace through that real tangible thing, because the real tangible thing already existed, Jesus. Right. He was the real tangible thing. Uh, the bread and the wine and the water of baptism, they're but symbols referring us back to, to the real uh, to the real thing. Um the other uh, point that you made uh, reminds me of what the Heidelberg Catechism says. Uh, the Heidelberg asks the question, uh, since we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only, so not by the sacraments, right. but by faith only, uh, which is an important point that we need to remember, and many in the church today need to remember, you are not made a partaker of the benefits of Christ merely by the sacrament. Right. You are not united to Christ merely by the sacrament. In fact, I'll, I'll read a quote from Calvin in just a moment, just to affirm that. The Heidelberg says, since it's by faith only, uh, how does this faith proceed? Uh, the answer is that the faith comes from the Holy Ghost, who works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel, and then confirms that faith 
by the use of the sacraments. Notice there that the Heidelberg distinguishes. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by the sacraments. Hmm. It says that he confirms the faith that is there by the working of the word is confirmed by the sacraments. Mm-hmm. There's a very clear distinction, and that's a distinction that we need, again, need to make, um, in that we don't want to raise the sacraments. We don't want to bring the sacraments down, mm-hmm. but we don't want to raise the sacraments to the level of the word. Right. Uh, Calvin puts it this way, and you, you reminded me of this as well when you were uh, talking a minute ago. Uh, Calvin says, um, uh, in baptism, the sign is water, but the thing... The thing is the washing of the soul by the blood of Christ and the mortifying of the flesh. He's talking about not confusing the sign and the thing signified. Uh, The institution of Christ includes these two things. Uh, Now that the sign appears often inefficacious and fruitless, that is, people get baptized who really shouldn't be, uh, he says, uh, this happens through the abuse of men, which does not take away the nature of the sacrament. He says, at the same time, we need to be aware of, of another evil, such as prevails among the Papists, which is what his term for Roman Catholicism, uh, for as they distinguish not as they ought between the thing and the sign, they stop at the outward element, and on that they fix their hope of salvation. Therefore, the sight of the water takes away their thoughts from the blood of Christ and the power of the Spirit. They do not regard Christ as the only author of the blessings therein offered to us. They transfer the glory of his death to the water. They tie the secret power of the Spirit to the visible sign. Now watch where he goes with this. He says, what then ought we to do in light of these things? Well, we ought not to separate what has been joined together by the Lord. We ought to acknowledge in baptism a spiritual washing. We ought to embrace therein the testimony of the remission of sin and the pledge of our renovation, and yet do this in such a way so as to leave to Christ his own honor and also to the Holy Spirit so that no part of our salvation should be transferred to the sign. Hmm. See, Calvin... You Bounces it well, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, leave it to Calvin to be balanced. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. It's all there. We're not saying that a baptism is a, is a lesser thing. It's a sacrament of Christ. He called us to do it. Um, and I think perhaps the error in evangelicalism today is that we've, we have put too little thought upon the table, mm-hmm. the Lord's Supper, and upon baptism, Absolutely. to the point that they have become individualistic, meaningless things. But I think what we're seeing then is in response to that, there are those who are reacting in a way that almost sounds like what Calvin calls the Papists. Right. And we want to avoid both ends. Mm-hmm. We want to come down right in the middle, right with right with Calvin. Yeah, and I think that we also want to, you know, if we think about Ephesians 1, and, you know, God's intention to save his people— that what we don't want to do is to say that God starts somebody with grace and then they finish themselves. Hmm. If God's going to save one and he gives grace, he doesn't give a grace that gets them started. He doesn't give them a grace uh, that is going to be lost. It's a grace that's been purposed before the foundation of the world. And that if he gives that grace, it's not part grace. It's full grace. 
It's full acceptance through Christ. And uh, that's actually the point of baptism. But what's scary is that some who are talking about baptism in this way, conferring some grace, some, some kind of union with Christ, saying that God actually gives grace to that child who's baptized, but it's a grace that can be lost. That doesn't sound like Ephesians 1 grace to me. That doesn't sound like Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. Now, even, even Hebrews 6, that talks about tasting of the heavenly gift and then falling away, it doesn't say they ate of the heavenly gift. It doesn't say the heavenly gift was fully theirs. Right. Uh, it says that they just merely tasted of it and fell away. Yeah, yeah. So this is important stuff. It's important that uh, that we understand the great thing that God's trying to say in baptism but not confuse it with the reality that only comes about uh, by the working of the Holy Spirit. Maybe the uh, good place to take this is uh, to the place of warning. Hmm. Uh, warning what happens if you do put too much of an emphasis on baptism. Um, and I think the the Bible is, is uh, full of warnings uh, particularly the New Testament, about what happens if they were to go back to circumcision. And I think any of these warn- warnings can easily be read by us and say, because we're just as in, much in danger of becoming Pharisees. Mm-hmm. We need focusing to look at, on the outward focusing on the instead outward, of the inward reality. Instead of the inward reality, relying too much on the outward. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think if we go to those warnings, we can see uh, that like those people to whom the New Testament writers were writing, we too need to be careful not to go back to the to the outward, but but to trust solely in Christ and and remember that it is by by faith alone. This is a uh, a little piece by uh, Tim Bailey, whom Matt and I both know and, and respect. Uh, he wrote on his blog. Uh, he he refers. I've seen this phrase a few times here. This is a phrase that seems to be used to identify those who are reacting to the individualistic mentality of today by going almost back to Catholicism, or at least it appears that way. I don't. They certainly would say they're not, but they seem to be reacting to that. He refers to them as, as the Neo-Baptists. Okay. And he says, he says this, this is how um, they would rewrite the New Testament. Okay, so I'm going to read you what he writes here, which is essentially he quotes the scripture, but he inserts a phrase, and I think it'll be obvious. Uh, he says, not 1 Corinthians 7.19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is baptism. Hmm. Uh, here he says, not Romans 2.28 and 29. Uh, for, he who, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is now baptism, by which we are made partakers of the new covenant. No, that's not what it says. Uh, and it's such a great point there when Romans 2 says, circumcision is not about the outward, it's about the inward. And and we're losing that, and we want to, we want to pull back, we want to gain that balance that, um, uh, that Calvin sees so wonderfully. Uh, not Galatians 6.5. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but the new covenant sign of baptism is everything. Um, not Philippians 3.2. 
Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and remember the day we receive the waters of baptism. Uh, here is... Um, this is great. Uh, Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent. Uh, now, this is not, this is the correct verse. Uh, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Acts 22.16, uh, Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Uh, these are texts uh, that not read in the light of faith in the light of those earlier warnings, could easily be taken out of context. Mm -hmm, for sure. Uh, Galatians 3.27, For you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Uh, but clearly, the scripture again and again goes back to, it's not that which is outward, it's that which is of faith. Jesus continually made the point that his kingdom was not of this earth. Mm. Um, and I think we need to beware any time that we see a tendency towards a new Christendom, you know, a, a calling up of Christ's kingdom on the earth, when in reality, uh, we're like Abraham. We're dwelling in tents until the day that we're called home to the promised land. And uh, let us not forget that. Uh, but let us always remember um, that it's not baptism that saves us. Right. It's Christ who saves us. Absolutely. And uh, keep that in the right perspectives. Well, we come about to the end of our time here. Uh, so we want to thank you for listening. We want to thank you for being a part of our podcast. We thank you for uh, your questions. Uh, we certainly are receiving them, and we're going to be using them in future podcasts. So feel free to ask them. Uh, feel free to comment over at the blog. We appreciate it. It keeps us doing what we're doing. Uh, we ask your patience. Uh, in the coming months, we're going to be trying out some new technology uh, for the podcast, so we may have some some errors, or we might not exactly get it to you on the first of the month. Uh, but we thank you for listening, and we're glad that we could have a ministry in your in your life. And um, we look forward to seeing you, uh, or uh, you hearing us, I guess, <laughs> uh, come next month. So until that time, may uh, God richly bless you as you pursue Him through His ordinary means. Mm -hmm.